Well, good morning. If you could open up your Bibles, please, um, in two places, actually, if that's okay. Um, the first place is Galatians 3, and then I suppose I'd love you to be ready to turn uh, to Genesis chapter 12 as well. So Galatians 3, we'll be looking at verse 15 down to verse 22, and then also if you could be ready to turn uh, to Genesis 12, that would be really good as well. Let me pray before we begin reading God's Word together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the privilege to read it this morning. And I pray as we read your word, Lord, it would impact our hearts and lives. So Lord, prepare us even right now. Lord, I pray for every single one in this room. Lord, I pray for for the children, Lord, as they sit and color and think of many different things, but I pray that some words might resonate in their heart this morning. Teach them, Lord, I pray. For us as adults here, I pray for tired mums this morning, um, exhausted dads this morning. Lord, our minds are often foggy and full of all sorts of different things. But Lord, we pray that you, by your grace, would speak to our hearts and minds this morning. So we ask that, Lord. Please come. Please speak. In your name. Amen. Amen. Let me read to you first, the first part of our passage this morning, Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Let's read. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. That's God's word to us this morning. And as you read Paul's argument this morning, and especially if you're tired, it's kind of hard to follow where Paul is going in his argument here. Just a few simple, small verses, and you kind of wonder, Paul, where are you going? But the focus of these verses is actually quite simple. The focus of these verses is based upon one word one kind of key word in these verses. This is the key word throughout these passages, and it is a word that I remembered I said to Luana about 15 years ago, if I get it right. 15 years ago, roughly, it's going to be 15 years in August. I hope I've got that right. Um, So have I got it right? Yes, I have. Sweet. Sweet. I didn't prepare that, so I was hoping that's right. Uh, About 15 years ago, Um, we were in Cork Baptist Church and we were getting married. And so we went to the pastor and we said to him, you know, we want to do our own vows, you know, be all romantic and all that kind of stuff. And he said, you can, 
but you're going to do the traditional ones as well. So we did the traditional ones. I'm really glad we did the traditional ones, actually, because I said something with substance. And so on our marriage day, I was thinking, you know what, I, I speak okay, I, I've got this, it will be fine, I'll just look at her and the words will just come and they'll flow and it'll be no problem, no bother. So Luana stands in front of me after we did the traditional ones, she says her own personal ones and she absolutely kills it. Very prepared, not a tear, nothing, just like absolutely drills down, kills it. And then it's my turn to speak, and, and I'm like, I don't have a clue what I'm about to say here. So I just wing it. But what we did is we did actually write down those words afterwards. And I did say to her words that I think were important. Here's what I said to Luana, um, it, fumbling and mumbling and whatever. I was 21 at the time, so you forgive me, huh? And crying. and crying as well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Luana actually had a bet on with her brides, I shouldn't say this, with her bridesmaids that she wouldn't cry on the day, so uh, she won, I lost. Um, Here's what I said. Anyway, back to what I'm saying. Here's what I said to her. I said, Luana, God has called me to honor you, respect you, and love you more than myself. I promise to do that. I promise to lead this family and guide us towards Christ always. The word I said to Luana was this, I promise. Now I've failed in different ways, I'm sure. I know, I'm a sinner like the rest of you. Um, There's no perfect husband in here or no perfect wife. But I made a commitment, and that commitment was with that word promise. And that's actually the key word in this passage, in these verses. It is the word promise. And even if you get a hold of that word promise, I believe you can get a hold of what Paul is trying to say to us. It is a word that you see in verse 16. Now, the promises. It is a word that you see at the end of verse um, 17, promise. It is a word that you see twice in verse 18, promise and promise. It is what Paul is talking about throughout these verses, the promises of God. And that's what I want you to remember this morning. Remember the promises of God. Even if your life is an absolute failure right now, and you're going through whatever you're going through right now, hold on to and remember the promises of God. Because God is always faithful to his promises. And you see, what Paul does is he, 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 in one way, he sets out at the start of this passage, he sets out the human promise and God's promise. And the human promise is in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Here's what he says to them. I'm going to give you a human example. And my human example is what I'm going to give to you, my brothers. Now, it is actually quite significant, just to take a sidestep here for a second, quite significant that he calls them his brothers. Because in this letter, people would read this letter primarily as negative, because what Paul does is he begins the letter 
Usually he begins all his letters with greetings and then thanksgiving. So he says, hello, my name is Paul, and then he gives thanks. He, he says, I thank my God always for you. But in Galatians, he starts with a greeting, hello, my name's Paul, whatever, and then he starts by this, no thanksgiving, no nothing. He starts and begins by saying, I am astonished that you would go so far away from the gospel. And then, and then chapter 3, the start of chapter three, 3, verse 1, he begins by saying, Oh, foolish Galatians. So the tone of this letter is kind of like that. He's giving out to them in a sense. And yet what Paul says here, as he's giving them a human example, he says to them, brothers. And he doesn't only say to them brothers once in the letter, he calls them brothers seven more times in the letter. Which tells us this, the instruction that Paul is giving is for our good. And so he's giving this human example. He says, with, with a human covenant, even with a human covenant promise, if one makes it, you cannot break it. Now, that's hard for us to understand in our society today because even one of the most precious covenants, one of the most precious covenants, that is the covenant of marriage, the covenant promise of marriage, what we say today, nowadays in our world, is you can make that promise, that covenant, and as soon as you fall out of love, guess what? You can break it. That's what our world would say to us today. If you just fall out of love, you can break it. That's not true. It reminds me of the words of a, of a fellow called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When he was talking about marriage, he says this. It is not love that sustains the covenant. It is the covenant that sustains the love. We rely upon the covenant promise that we have made to our husbands and our wives to sustain the love. It is not whether I fall in or out of love. I am committing and choosing each day to love. What does that mean about love? Love is actually a choice, brothers and sisters, not a feeling. So you have to wake up every morning and choose to love him and choose to love her. And you make those choices because you've made that covenant promise. And when you've made that covenant promise, we are called to keep it. And it's hard for us to think of such an example, a human example, that you would make a covenant that you would not break. But the example it would almost be like this. It would be like um, someone uh, making their will. And they make their will and say, look, my, 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 my wife is going to get this much. My, my sons and my daughters, they're going to get this. And when the person dies, can anybody change the will? No. Imagine if they could change the will after the person died. You'd be getting a lot more money if you could change the will, wouldn't you? But once the person dies, you can't change that promise, that will. I'm going to give you all this. They die, and that has to stay that way. And what Paul is saying, at least back in the day when they had certain types of covenants like this, Paul is saying, if that is the way with human promises, if that is the way with a human will that cannot be changed, how much more for God's promises? When God makes a promise to you, God is certainly and always going to keep it. Hold to the promises of God. And so the promise that he talks about is in verse 16, the promise that is given to Abraham. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. 
You see, God, He made this covenant promise to Abraham. He made this agreement with Abraham. This promise that was not based upon his behavior. It was not like the law covenant that God made with Moses that was based upon their behavior. It was an eternal promise that was given by God to Abraham, given by grace. And the promise that he's talking about that is given to Abraham is seen in Genesis chapter 12. And so that's what I want you to turn to. I want you to see... In Genesis chapter 12, this is really important in Scripture. One day, um, maybe in September, I want to take us through the covenant promises of God in, in Scripture. But for now, I want you to turn to Genesis 12. And this is the covenant promise that he's talking about. This is the promise given to Abraham. It says this in Genesis 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, shall be blessed and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed that is the promise given to Abraham and what Paul is trying to get the Galatians to do is he wants the Galatians to lean on the promise and not lean on the behavior of the law I want you to take this promise which was given 430 years before this law given and I want to stake your life on that promise so what is unique about that promise there are three parts to it some nerds will say there's four there's all sorts of opinions about the promise but the promise essentially I would say has three parts to it there is a land part to the promise you are going to get a land Abraham he's going to take him out of his country I'm going to give you a home I'm going to give you a land I'm going to give you a place to stay the second part of the promise is, I'm going to make you into a great nation, a people. Land, people. I'll make you into a great nation. And the third part of the promise is this. The third part of the promise is blessing. So here's what the Lord says. Abram, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. And I'm going to bless you. And throughout the whole Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, you see glimpses of possibilities that this promise might be fulfilled, except it never gets fulfilled. There's this land promise. God says, I'm going to bring you into the promised land that's full of mil milk and honey, and yet they don't quite take that land promise. There's that promise of, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and God's people, they grow, but they, they, they don't quite excel. And then there's that promise of blessing, that God's people would be blessed, and yet you see glimpses of it happen in the Old Testament, but you don't see it finally fulfilled. And that is until Jesus Christ comes. Because as Ruth was reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says this, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. All the promises of God Every single covenant you see in the Old Testament, they find their yes and their amen and their fulfillment 
in Jesus. So here's the deal. How do we get into the land promise, the people promise, and the blessing promise? You get in through Jesus by faith. That's how you get the land. That's how you get the people. That's how you get the blessing. You believe in Jesus by faith. It is not by obedience and the works of the law. It is by faith in Christ who has fulfilled all these promises. He is the true and final offspring to which all the promises of God point. So what does that mean for us? The moment that I have believed and trusted in Jesus, I get the inheritance of the land promise. Not a land on this earth, but there is a land that is to come, isn't it? The new heavens and the new earth, the place that is flowing with milk and honey, the place where there is no more suffering, no more sorrows, no more tears, and no more pain. The moment I believe in Jesus is the moment that promise is guaranteed to be mine the promise of a great nation and the promise of a great people. The moment I believe in Jesus, the promise is for me that one day I will be in the new heaven and the new earth and I will be singing with every tribe and tongue and nation, hallelujah to the glory of God because of his fulfillment of this promise. Not only land, not only a people, but I The moment I believe in Jesus, I will be eternally blessed. Eternally blessed. His blessing is mine. And you know this word blessed? This word blessed, it occurs occurs in Revelation. Do you know how many times it occurs in Revelation? It occurs seven times in Revelation. That is no accident. It occurs at the beginning of Revelation. It occurs at the end of Revelation. And it speaks of God's blessing to his people that when you believe in Jesus and when you inherit the promise of the land, the promise of heaven, you will have the blessing of God. And the final reference of this blessing that we inherit through Jesus Christ's obedience in his life is written in Revelation 22 verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city gates. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Wash their robes in what? Revelation 7:14. They've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And when you wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb, you are blessed for eternity. This promise to Abraham is what we rely on. And that's what he's trying to get the Galatians to focus on. Because what the Galatians are doing is they're focusing on the law. They're focusing on the Ten Commandments. They're trying to say, if I just obey this, if I just keep this rules, the circumcision law, then I will get the promise. And what Paul is trying to say is, no, it's the promise that was given first 430 years before. You rely on the promise for your inheritance, not the law. And so he says in verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the inheritance of land and seed and blessing does not come by the law, it comes by the promise. 
and brothers and sisters. What does that mean for us? That means that we wait for this promise. It is guaranteed for us. It will not fail because God is the one who speaks the promise to us. I don't know if you ever waited for a promise. Have you ever waited for a promise? I have waited for a promise. Um, I remember when Steve Keating had to wait for my promise. I didn't use the words, in my defense, I didn't use the word, I promise. But he did ask me, Shane, you know, I need to get to the airport in, I think it was, he was flying Dublin and he needed to get an air coach at like, I don't know, it was a five or six in the morning. So he needed to get the air coach. He said, Shane, can, can you give me a, a lift? <laughs> you know where this is going. Can you give me a lift to the, to the air coach at like five or six in the morning? I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. So he asked me that like a week before. And then him knowing me, he texted me the day before. He said, Shane, can you, you know, collect me and, and bring me to the air coach so I can, I was like, yeah, no problem. And the next morning I wake up and it's like, I don't know, is it half seven or eight or something? The alarm didn't go off and I just see all these texts from Steve. And in fairness, what a gracious guy. He was like, I've made my own way up. You're fine, don't worry about it. And so at that moment, he has this choice. Shane has made a promise to me. Now, I didn't say the words I promised, but still doesn't excuse the fact that I messed up and missed him. But he has a choice. Will I rely on Shane's word or will I make my own way? Um, and for the children in the room, this is what's going to happen to you, children. Um, your parents are going to say, we're going to collect you after school. No. And uh, they'll say, we'll collect you after school. And they'll make that promise, we'll collect you after school and you'll be waiting after school and you'll be waiting for your, for your mommy and daddy and you have a choice at that time. Do I trust in the word of my mommy and daddy? Do I trust in the promise that my mom or dad made? Or do I trust them that they're going to come and they're going to bring me home? Or do I make my own way home? By my own works, do I make my own way home? And that is the difference between the promise and the law. The law will say, I'm going to make my own way to heaven. I'm not going to trust anybody to get me there. I'm going to do all the works by the law. I'm going to be so obedient and so good that by the time I get to the gates of heaven, he will have no other option but to let me in because of how great I was. That's the law. But the promise says, Lord, I've got nothing. I have got nothing to give, I've got nothing in my hands, and I'm gonna wait on you, Lord Jesus, to bring me home. That's trust in the promise, not in the law. And so that's the key word of our, our passage, the promise. Do you this morning trust in the promise of God? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus for eternal life? That's what Jesus is calling you to do. And brothers and sisters, I would encourage even the Christians among us this morning to think upon the promises of God. Do you know what we don't do, and I don't do this well? We often don't stop, and we often don't turn off. When was the last time you turned off your phone? When was the last time you sat in a place with, with no noise? And I know this is unfair probably for you, you know, mothers and stuff like that. That's that, slightly unfair, I get it. There's no quiet place usually. And even when you go to the toilet, they're still at you. But like, <laughs> sorry. 
But like the reality is, all I'm saying is, often we'll say, we'll say, I have no quiet place, I have no place to shut off, turn off, be quiet, nothing. I have, I have none of that. But we do often find a place to watch something or to turn on our phones or, like how long do we spend on these things? A lot of time. But I wonder if God, if we could pray, Lord, could you give me some time where I can stop, turn off, shut off, and think for a while about my inheritance. When was the last time you thought about heaven? Do you know one of the way, one of the reasons I think we as Christians live such earthly lives is because we spend most of our th- time thinking about here. And we spend none of our time thinking about the inheritance. And that's what I encourage you to do, brothers and sisters. Take time and think about the inheritance that we have in the Lord. So the one word is the word promise, but the second word is that word law. And I don't want to take as long with this word, but I want to read to you the verses about how the law then and the promise work. Because the question is, well, if, if it's all about the promise, then what's the point in the law? In verse 19 to 22, listen to what he says. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the question becomes, if it is all about the promise, then what is the point in giving us the law? What's the point in the Ten Commandments? If, if we don't have to think about that anymore, only the promise, then why do we have to think about the law? What's its purpose? What's its function? Now, when I say the word law, when I mention the word law, guess what happens to almost every single brain in the room? You switch off. Because when you hear the word law, what do you think of? When I hear the word law, I hear boring. That's what I think of, boring. That's, that's one of the things when, when I hear law rules, works, boring. But when we think of the law, some Christians think of the law and they think, well, because of what Paul has written in Romans and Galatians, we think of the law and we think of it as bad. Right? It's boring or it's bad. The law is not good, we think. No, no, no. The law of God is is wonderful because God wrote it. Guess what's bad? It's not the law. What's bad? Those who can't keep the law. So, so the perspective of the law is not that it's boring and not that it's bad. The perspective we should have in the law is that the law is beautiful. And that's the perspective of the psalmist. The psalmist in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about the law. It's one of the longest psalms in the Bible. And in the law, it is the longest psalm in the Bible. He says this, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. So the psalmist is praying, 
Lord, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in Leviticus. Open my eyes to see its beauty. Psalm 119, verse 70. I delight in your law. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. Psalm 119, verse 109. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. And Psalm 119, verse 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law. The book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, your law, he says, is my delight. So when we hear the word law as Christians, we should not think of boring and bad. We should think of this is beautiful. So what then is its purpose? Its purpose is what he says in verse 19. It has been added because of transgressions. The reason we have been given the law, the reason we have the law, is because of our sin. Now, some would say the law is given to restrain our sin, kind of hold back our sin, so when you see the law, you know what you should or shouldn't do, and the law keeps you from your sin. Well, that's not quite the way, because you look at the law, and you look at your life, and it does nothing to restrain me of my sin. No, what, what the law does, and it doesn't even deal with our sin, You know, it doesn't even finally deal with our sin. It doesn't solve the problem. No, what the law does is it shows us the problem. The law is is like the x-ray. It shows us the problem, but it does not fix the problem. And that's what the Galatians are doing. They're going into the x-ray room. They're seeing the picture. They're seeing all the broken bones. They're seeing the problem, and they think, that x-ray, it's going to fix all my problem. It won't. The purpose of the law is to show us our problem. And that's what he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, he becomes conscious of sin. Or Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would have not have known what sin was except for the law. That's what the law does. It shows you your sin. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. I would have been fine without the law. But the moment the law said, don't covet, what did I want to do? Covet. The moment the button says, do not touch, what do you want to do? You want to push it. Exactly right. The moment the sign on the grass says, Do not walk. What do you want to do, Simeon? Walk on it. Exactly right. That's what we want to do. We see the law. We see the rule. And it points out our problem. That's its purpose. And so he goes on to say in verse 21 of our passage, Is the law then contrary to the promise? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it's not. The law cannot give life. The law does not give life. It was never intended to give life. What the law does is it shows you death. Here's what it's like. The other day, um, I went 
um, my brothers, they had organized a boat out from Monkstown there, and we went out on, on a boat uh, from Monkstown. He was getting married. It was kind of like his stag, and we were going out on a boat and whatever. I was designated driver, so um, I wasn't going to mention the stag because it would be like, you're all judging me or whatever. But anyway, I went out on the boat and, and went out in the water, and I saw this place in Monkstown. It was the place where um, there was these like uh, concrete toilet building or whatever, that you could jump off into the water down by Monkstown here. And so when I was younger, what we did, all the lads, we used to jump off into the water. And, and it was a lot of fun, but it was also gross, because the reality was basically all of the storage was going out like directly into the water. So you're just jumping in, it's, it's nasty. <coughs> Excuse me. And then after I jumped in one time, I jumped in, but not only did I jump in, I swam out. And if you know anything about that water out there, that is one thing that you do not want to do because the currents are really dangerous. So I swam out and I got caught in a current. Now, thankfully, I was able to get my way out of it somehow. But in some way, that's actually what the law does. The law brings you out, out of your depth, brings you out into trouble, shows you your need, shows you that you're drowning, shows you that you have no hope, so that you do what? You rely on the promises of God. This law, it's not gonna do it. The promises of God, they will. And so he finishes in Galatians chapter three, verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The scripture is another summary for the law. The law did this. It put us in prison so that we would realize I need someone to get me out. And my only way out of here is through faith in Jesus, the one who has perfectly obeyed and perfectly fulfilled the law. So the question for us this morning is, are you relying on the promises of God or are you relying on your own works? The Galatians, they were relying on their own works. This passage reminded me of a poem that I heard. Um, some attributed it to a guy called John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. I don't think it was written by John Bunyan. I think it was a, another John Spurgeon quotes this poem in, in one of his sermons and attributes it to another John. And he says this about the law and about the promise of God. The poem goes like this. Run, John, run. The law commands but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It calls us to fly and it gives us wings. The law says, run, 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 earn your way to heaven. The law is exhausting and tiring and never works. And what Christians do is we get caught in the busy rat race of our Christianity and we keep trying to run, 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 run. Whereas the Bible and the gospel would say, no, you need to fly and I'm going to give you the wings. It's not about your works. It's about trust in his promise. And I would call on us all today 
to go home and continue trusting in Jesus. I would love our church to be that. A church that wouldn't just be a place of run, 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 rush, 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 but would be a place where we hear the gospel and we rest in him, the promises of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your law. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your law that points out your character and points out our need for Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning, each and every one of us, we would rely on the promises of God, the promise given to Abraham of land, seed, and blessing that we can inherit through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us moments, even in busy family life, to stop, switch off, turn off, and think about our inheritance. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great and precious promises. May we trust in you. Amen. Let's stand and sing.